welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. My name is Chaim, and I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. Um, this group voted that we should do a workshop on the 12 steps. And, um, I honestly feel grateful to be able to do it. If you asked me 13 years ago, would I be giving, <coughs> would I be giving a workshop on the 12 steps? answers would obviously be no, and 12 years ago the same. Um, When I gave this workshop a few years ago, I shared this by a meeting recently, there's a part of me that was taking maybe more than I was giving. What I mean by that is, is that I had such a low self-esteem, such a void, that there was a part of me that needed to give, I needed to be heard, I needed to be understood. And it was interesting, when we were voting, there was a part of me that truly felt, I just want to give back what was given to me. This program taught me how not to lust, it taught me how not to act out, taught me how to have a beautiful marriage, taught me how to have a beautiful family, with the ups and downs, with the struggles, taught me how to deal with a flat tire on the road, that I don't have to act out because I had a flat tire. It taught me how to get from place to place, literally. I could drive from here to Brooklyn and actually takes an hour and 15 minutes. It doesn't anymore take six hours. It taught me how to live life. It It taught me that when I come home, my wife could be in a bad mood and I could still remain happy. It taught me so many phenomenal things. And there's a passion that I have that I just want to give it back. I read over the weekend in the white book. He says somewhere in step five or four, he says, if the feeling is you don't want to move on, then go back to step one. If you don't have that passion, if you don't have that feeling of that this is working, you're not getting the spiritual awakening and you should start over again. It means something is missing. So I really appreciate the fact that I could give over. I do have the passion. And the workshop I would like to start is really before even step one. I found my experience in this fellowship for 12 and a half years is that a lot of people who I've asked privately to, do you inherently, do you believe between you and yourself, do thy own self be true? Do you believe that you are a sexaholic? The answer by a lot of people were no. And then the question was, do you you even know what a sexaholic is? 
What is a sexaholic? Chaim, I'm a sexaholic. What does that mean? Doesn't everybody on the street lust? Doesn't everybody like nakedness? Whichever gender? <laughs> it doesn't make a difference. Why am I a sexaholic? And what does a sexaholic even mean? <clears throat> I did some, some serious research into a lot of people in recovery. A lot, I mean a lot. I have found that the reason why, part of the reason, there's many reasons, but part of the reason why people don't recover is they don't know what they're recovering from. What am I recovering from? Why am I really here? What is, what is this disease that people call disease? First of all, I don't even know if it is a disease, isn't a disease. What is this sexualism? What is this idea of life and death? People throw out the statement, this is a, a life and death disease. Is it life and death? Like, like cut it out. Like, let's, let's get real. And I'll say it even further. And then you speak to people who are sober for years, including Chaim, looking in the mirror. And then I start questioning myself, you know, sober for that long, maybe I could control this thing. That's what comes up after a few years. And if I can't control it, then what am I, sentenced there to life? This is what it is? And there's a lot of confusion I found, unspoken confusion. I think what I would like to try to do <clears throat> is simply tap into this a little bit. Um, I was taught many years ago not to prepare for any talks. So I honestly have not prepared. I haven't written down anything and I have no idea. The only thing I have is my experience, my strength and hope of being here for years. And whatever ideas come into my head over the, <clears throat> the talk, I'm just gonna honestly share. And there was some ideas that came, came over the last few days, like in the shower and, you know, while I'm brushing my teeth, but I didn't prepare. I'm talking free. I'm asking God to really talk from me so it penetrates. When I came into this fellowship 12 and a half years ago, coming up on 13 years soon. And they told me that this is life and death. I thought they were retarded. I'm a yeshiva guy. I'm a Jewish kid who is horny and likes women. I prefer them undressed than dressed, but I'll take them either way. It's as simple as that. And I come into my meetings and I'm speaking to old timers and they're getting all bent out of shape this is life and death and I have a friend 17 years ago that died and, and this happened and that happened and it's like, cut it out. Everybody likes sex. It's as simple as that. <clears throat> I saw in the big book, it says there's only one type of person in our fellowship that can't get sober. Only one. Everybody else could get sober and everybody else could remain sober. That person is a person that cannot be rigorously honest rigorously honest. It doesn't mean be honest. It means get very deep between you and yourself. And that's what we're going to try to do in this, in this workshop is get like really honest. Ask the questions that you never wanted to ask during the portion of question and answers. Think a little bit deeper. Am I just coming here as this is like a grocery store where I just pick up a few groceries, put it into a bag and leave. And then wonder 
why it's not working. <clears throat> Do I just show up here and hope that, okay, I got, I've heard this a lot from a lot of sponsors, a lot of people in Brooklyn. I got the message for the day. So I could stay sober today. Is that willpower? I thought I'm powerless over sex and lust. And if I'm powerless, then do I have any power to stay sober or not? These are a lot of questions that, that I think needs a little bit of understanding. But if we don't get rigorously honest to the core of our beings, how are we meant to stay sober? I'll just give one example and then we'll move on. A guy walks into a doctor and he has cancer, but he tells the doctor I have a terrible cold. The doctor's gonna give him the medication for a cold if he can't fully examine him correctly. Now let's say the doctor does examine him correctly and the doctor realizes he has heavy level cancer. Doctor says, buddy, you gotta go to radiation, you gotta take treatments, you gotta take medication, you gotta be here at least twice a week, da 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 da. This is what I see in you. The guy says, I don't see it. I know I feel bad sometimes, there's some discomfort going on inside of me, but I don't feel what you're telling me I feel. So this guy goes to a different doctor to get a second opinion and a third opinion. At one point, this guy figures, it's very simple. Either I believe the doctors, I don't believe myself, I believe the doctors. I disagree with the doctors. I say straight out, I think the doctors are liars. But I, I, Chaim, is not feeling good. Somehow I, Chaim, see a girl and go home and pull down my pants and masturbate. Somehow I feel very good so I go home and do the same thing. And sometimes it could just be simply raining outside or a beautiful day so I go home and watch porn for seven hours. And sometimes there's no reason whatsoever but I'm acting insane. And I don't know why. And these doctors are telling me, buddy, we had the same sickness that you had. We've done A, B, C, or in our terms, 1 to 12. You know something? We don't struggle with this anymore on a daily basis. We don't act out. Here and there, there might be a slip of an action of lust but we work a lust-free program. We have happy lives overall. Are there struggles, are there difficulties, are there emotion disturbances? Yeah. I have to come here and ask myself, am I ready to look at the doctor, who's my sponsor, who's the program, and say I'm wholeheartedly ready to listen? I heard recently in the meeting over here, the other day, to be honest, one guy was telling another guy, <clears throat> Pick and choose what you want to take and whose message you want to take. And then decide if it works for you or not. My humble opinion, that's suicide. In recovery continues, it says, go to the guy on the park bench, ask him what to do rather than listening to your own brain. It says another example, hail down the next cab and ask him for direction. But you are so powerless over your life and it makes your life so unmanageable that anybody but my brain could get me out of the mess. 
Do I really believe that, sitting here? Do I come to a meeting and really ask myself, I humble myself to the people who came before me, who have been down the roads, to the doctors who came before me. I tried other methods and it doesn't work. I, am, I give up and I'm ready to listen. Or am I still in the fighting situation, in the fighting bin? So what is the sexaholic? Let's get down to it. In the white book, he says the sexaholic is someone who has taken himself or herself out of the whole context of what is right or wrong. He or she has lost control. If my sponsor told that to me, I wouldn't want him to sponsor me. I told you I have a problem with sex and lust, and you're telling me I've lost complete power, complete knowledge of knowing the difference between right and wrong? That is the definition of a sexaholic? That's what Roy K. came up with? <clears throat> and the answer for me is yeah. The answer for me is I got to a place of I can't figure this out. See, this disease is a disease of twofold, the big book explains. It's a disease of the mind and there's yet a physical allergy. This is so crucially important. The disease of the physical mind started when I got uncomfortable as a child and someone showed me pornography and all of a sudden I got comfortable. My brain taught me from those experiences that when I'm uncomfortable, you know how you get comfortable? You masturbate, you watch porn. When that didn't suffice, you masturbate twice because you're not comf as comfortable and you needed a little bit more. Now when that happened, when you, I acted out once and I got a little bit comfortable, but yet after a few times of that happening, the dosage wasn't enough, I needed to up it, there's something else that happened, the big book explains, and that's called a physical craving. The phenomenon of the physical craving. I have an emotional and mental disease that when I'm uncomfortable or I'm disturbed or my equilibrium is off, I need lust, but I have a second punch that comes with it. The second punch that comes with it, the big book explains is that I opened up a can called the phenomenon of craving. The phenomenon of craving means I cannot stop. It's as if I drank a few cups of water and I'm holding myself back from going to the bathroom. Once the water entered my system, unless I throw it up or I don't know what the hell I do, I'm going to the bathroom. It's a phenomenon of craving. Now, yeah, are there times that somehow I could take a cup of water or a sip and not go to the bathroom? It happens. Only the addict will tell himself, see, I could drink water and not go to the bathroom. I could lust and not have to go to the bathroom. And not have to go to the bathroom. Exactly. I could take actions of lust and it's okay. The big book 
addiction, the definition of a sexaholic, an alcoholic, or any addict, is something called a phenomenon of craving. I truly believe that there are people that can walk into a strip club, enjoy their night, and walk out. I walked in a basket case and left a worse basket case. And the only thing I was looking for is some enjoyment. But remember what I told you. As a kid, I told myself, I'm uncomfortable. Taking some lust, you'll get comfortable. But there's something else that this program taught me. You one day cross over the level of no matter how much lust or sex you take into your body, you can't become comfortable again. That for me is the definition of an addict. There is not enough pornography in the industry to give Chaim that comfort anymore. How many of us had 10 screens open at one time from one screen to the next, to the next, to the next? But interestingly enough, when I started the binge, I just want to see a pair of breasts. That's it. It could even be, it could even be with a bra on. And I'll even look with a half an eye. And then all of a sudden there's 10 scenes of pornography and, and I'm masturbating to the wrong scene somehow. Why am I masturbating to the wrong scene? There isn't a correct scene to masturbate to. I crossed over to the level of insanity. I cannot lust anymore like a gentleman. It's never enough. So all of a sudden, you hear this from a lot of guys that come into program and they're like, my wife is not pretty enough. And for years I've been struggling with that. My wife is pretty enough, but she's not sexual enough. My wife is sexual enough, but she doesn't want to do what I want to do in the bedroom, which I struggled with all of the above with. There's not enough sex in the world to make me feel comfortable. It's important for me to stop and just explain this. is not like another like Chabura or another like um, group gathering or another like opportunity to, to like hear a few messages on recovery. What I'm trying to give over it was, is, is, is seriously what was given over to me. When I came into recovery, we were a group of like five, six, seven guys. I had to fly out to, <coughs> to Nashville, to other places, to 11, 12 different conventions, sitting down with old timers who had tens of years of sobriety to, to get this information. We were just looking at each other and saying, don't masturbate and make sure your head goes onto your pillow and you're a rock star. I didn't know all, like, what is going on? And I think it's important to tap into what makes me a sexaholic? Why am I different? Why could that guy check the woman out and not me? Why could that guy check the guy out and not me? Why I'm doing so well and all of a sudden I'm doing so bad. You hear this in meetings all the time. I was doing so good. I just got 90 days and all of a sudden I'm doing so bad. Why are guys not coming committed to meetings on a committed, steady basis? I found most people don't believe in the disease model. They don't really believe that they're so sick. And I've tried it out with those people who actually don't come. I asked them, do you really believe you're as sick as I believe I'm sick? <laughs> because people who know me believe, understand how sick I am. No. 
So then you, you need Tylenol. You think you went into the doctor, you took a few pills, you have a headache, you're going to feel better. Two months later, you're screaming, you're not feeling better. Three years into program, you're screaming, I'm not feeling better. Ten years into program, I'm still acting out and I don't get it. What I was told is write a list, which we're going to get into in the next um, talk, next Thursday. That when you see that list, you know you're going to stay sober. Write down what you think you're going to do. What do you need to do? When you're done, double the list, hit your knees and pray your lungs out, call your sponsor, get to another meeting very quickly, and hope to God you stay sober. That's how serious I needed to take recovery. Sometimes I find in recovery as well, you know, people, and I'm guilty of this also, you know, I, I got sober eventually after relapsing a few times here, going to strip clubs, massage parlors, <clears throat> I'm fooling around with my wife inappropriately when she wasn't willing to. My sponsor took away my sobriety for that twice. Whoever did that, don't feel guilty and now think you have to reset, relax. <laughs> but um, something to work on. But at one point in my early recovery, I remember sitting with an old timer and he told me this message that I'm giving over to everybody today. Until every fiber of your being believes that you are different than everybody out there, you have lost control. Once a cucumber becomes a pickle. It will never become a cucumber again. Never. You could want it to become. You could hit your knees and pray. You could do step work on it to become a cucumber again. It will not. <coughs> if you have a disease that I have, then in the fiber of our being, we need to get to a place of recognizing that I have no other solution. Like they say in AA, this is your last stop. It's not like after this you're going to go to the rub. You try that. It's not like after this you're going to start learning some, some books. It's not like after this you're going to go to therapy and try it and that's going to work. We've done all this. It's not like you're going to go to rehab and it's going to work. We've done that also. This is like when everything else didn't work and we're here. You know what's here different than in every other place? There's something over here called a power greater than ourselves, which we choose to call him by name God. Find him or suffer or die. You don't have a choice. See, it's so interesting. I said, I remember like, you know, I wasn't an easy guy to just convince. I sat with some old timers and I'm like, yeah, but who said I'm really an addict? Who said I really don't have power? Who said it, sometimes I do have power? The message I got is you don't have a choice whether to believe it or not. If you don't believe that you are powerless over sex and lust, you will act out again. And then was the same thing with my step three, my step two. I don't believe in a power greater in myself. What is this BS? A new God. What's wrong with my old God? You don't have a choice. 
You don't look at the doctor having cancer and say, you know something? I think the treatments that they're starting to give me is a little too much. You're being too tense on the treatments. I prefer gentleness. I like being spoken to gentle. I like working my program calmly. I show up at 8.15, I show up at 8.30, I show up at nine, I do some work, I meditate a little bit, I come a little bit early before the meeting, I'm here by half a meeting, and then I have a whole day. What do you mean? I have children, I have a wife, I have finances, I have religion, I have commitments, I have... I can't go for therapy. I mean, I can't go for treatment for my cancer. The doctor can't help you then. When I came in, there was a core group of guys. <laughs> I think Zevi can remember this. We were like six, seven guys. We thought we were like the creeps of the world. It wasn't like now where, you know, they're coming in by the, by the busloads here where it's like, okay, you two, you two, you two. You know, it's like you could have a day, 150 guys in Lakewood by meetings. Literally, 150 guys be, from morning to night. Some days you could have 200. You have three meetings in the morning, one in the afternoon, and one at night. We were six guys. If we each would have showed up to all these meetings, there would be one guy by each meeting. <laughs> Some meetings were eight, nine, ten. I felt... Like I was the creep of the world. I felt I was bad. I felt I'm sinning against God. I felt like this is all a sin. This is not a disease. There's a great recording from Henoch, which is titled, this is not, this is a sick, not evil. It's a great talk, sick, not evil. It's a big, important part of the disease model. How many guys sit for years thinking they're still evil, still feeling that they're evil, still feeling like they have a freedom of choice whether to do it or not? I had an interesting thing happen to me a few weeks ago. I was <clears throat> I'm part of a, a WhatsApp group to check the times of synagogue, what time they pray. And somebody hacked it and sent some nude pictures with a link on it. And I clicked on the picture and it was complete, like, whoa, I haven't seen that in a very long time. And I shook and I, I, I walked away and I was like, Duh. my kids were around, so I walked away from my kids and, and then comes the voices. Make a phone call. Did you really see that? Make a phone call. Did you really see it? I picked up my phone and I clicked on it again. And then the voices came. Your whole recovery is shit. Okay, you're sober? This is called sobriety? Okay, I'm just, I'm just not gonna look at it, finish, and never have it. What's that link? The link is real? Are you laughing? It happened to you once in the past. You clicked on a link, there you answer. I clicked on the link. Holy sh Okay, I didn't click on the link. <laughs> I never clicked on the link. We consider it not clicked. This went on for, let's say, two to five minutes. And then came this shame. This is called sobriety. Don't you hear these guys in the meetings that, that say I'm lost, free for 18 years? Chaim, look at you. This is called lust-free. We're talking lust-free. You know what lust-free means? Ask them what lust-free is, those lust-free people. They'll tell you. And I called up an old-timer. <clears throat> 
it's the humility also that that the the step one gives of like Chaim, your brain is working, you're thinking. So I called up Harvey, and I told Harvey what I did. He's laughing his ass off. I said, Harvey, what is so funny? You don't believe that you are really sick. You don't think you have a disease. You really believe after you clicked the first time, which was a mistake, that you had power not to click a second time. I thought we say we're powerless. Don't you introduce yourself for the past 13 years, 12 years, that you're powerless, that there's something called a phenomenon of craving, that there's no power in the world that could stop it? And you're sitting on the phone shaming yourself to me. And he even asked me this question. I said, you hit the nail on the head. What bothers you about the story, he asked me. And I said, you know what bothers me? That it couldn't stop. The whole definition of sexualism is that you can't stop. We can't pick from right and wrong. The phenomenon of craving hit. If I'm allergic to milk, whether I want to be allergic or not allergic, somebody in my block, a little girl, the other day had an allergic reaction. Somebody didn't realize and gave her milk. Five Atzala cars, they're poking her with needles, they're giving her medication, she's sitting there, she's breaking out, I'm sitting there shaking. I'm allergic to lust. I break out all over. By the grace of God, I was explained. Because I'm so committed to the program, because I'm so drenched in, because I take so much medication daily, God, this time, after three to five minutes, allowed it to stop. But so help me God, if I wasn't drenched in this, I'm done. Who cares? I have 12 and a half years under my belt of sobriety. I'm powerless. I got to be honest with you. Even with all the work I've done in recovery, with all the messages that were given to me, there's a part of me that still didn't believe it. And over the years, never wants to believe this disease model. You know what helped me believe it? The same thing I've been saying all along. That's also the definition of sexualism. To not believe how sick we really are. And to prove ourselves that we really have a handle on it. So I'm gonna stop here. There's much more to talk about. But the first message, I think the first work that we could do is, is realized how sick we are, the devastation of the, the disease, how we want to deny the disease, how we didn't pick this disease, this disease was given to us. And the only way to get out of it is by taking an enormous, enormous, enormous amount of medication. Like it says in the big book, he writes over there something along the lines, the whole reason for this entire book was for one thing and one thing only. To find a loving God that could get rid of the obsession of lust. That's the whole purpose of the entire book, of every meeting, of every phone call, of everything that we do. is to find a loving God that could get rid of the obsession of lust. For me, the way I got rid of that was an enormous amount of work, which we could talk about in the next, in the next workshop. But for today, whoever wishes, let's take a piece of paper out. And let's prove to ourselves 
how, how we are powerless over sex and lust. The list that I like to write is obviously you could write 10 things, you could, five, you could write just five things down on a piece of paper. What I like to do is five words on a piece of paper, just ex- the example of what is the sex and lust. <clears throat> but what I'd like to also do is maybe on the opposite side is also write 10 things that you still want to do. Isn't it incredible? I'm sexually sober for 12 and a half years. I could be honest today and say I don't have a wish list anymore, but when I am rattled or there's something going on inside of me, that wish list comes up very quickly. So thousands of meetings, thousands of hours about a doctor, 11 conventions, 24 JSSs, and I still want to lust. That's the definition of sexualism. So let's write down on one side of the paper as well. The you can keep it running. So we're gonna ask questions also. Leave it. Let's write down on the side of the paper the ten things that you still want to do that show powerlessness and unmanageability, that show that you're different than everybody else out there. Not that you're the same. That you're different. That if you were given a free pass today, what would be the things you still would like to do? And while that goes on, while this writing, I'll take some, some questions and answers. The first side is the, the things you've done in the past. Okay, the first side of the paper is the, the things you've done in the past. Even if you wrote it recently, you could rewrite it again. It just, it just helps to see it. I walked around for the first bunch of years with a tiny piece of paper, three words on each line, of 10 episodes that show I am just different. That if anybody in the world got a hold of those 10 things, it wouldn't look pretty, <laughs> okay? So those were able to prove to me that I am different and that I need more medication than just a prayer or, or this or that. Yeah? Nervous. Just one thing, one thing. We're being recorded. If you're not comfortable being recorded, don't raise your hand, okay? Great question. Love it. Love it. So the question is, I don't want to write things what I want to do, because if I write them, then it's going to bring up the, the, the knee-jerk reaction of actually wanting to do it. It's going to make the craving stronger. <laughs> Love the question. By one of the conventions, I don't remember which one it is, but somebody asked this question to the old-timers panel and said, this is why sometimes recovery doesn't work for the sexaholic. If you weren't so rigorously honest about that, you would maybe act out by writing it down. But there is a power in this program by sharing it out of our mouths. Roy K says it's the athlete's foot of the soul, is darkness, (coughs) is secrets. By keeping things secretive and not speaking it out, then we actually do what we didn't speak out. Somehow it works the opposite. By writing it out, by talking it out, by saying the most shameful, disgusting, darkest things inside, somehow then it disappears. I'm being recorded, so I'm not going to say some of my most darkest things just for safety reasons, but there are things that were so dark that, that it scared even me. And by one of the conventions, Harvey made me, didn't make me, he suggested to me that 
I calmly go over to people and look at them in the eyes and tell them my 10 most darkest, shameful, belittling things. Like some of the things I was very ashamed of is like I used to watch like not only porn, but with animals, like humans with animals. And it brought up so much shame for me. It's not, that's not sexy. Like, you know, there's no, you know. <laughs> and I, when I would share it originally, I couldn't look at people in the eyes when I would share it. I was so ashamed of it. But God, somehow the way this program works is God has it that when you bring it to the light, it has a power that it disappears. So bringing it to the light is putting God on a piece of paper. And I would strongly recommend after the meeting, go over to somebody who you feel safe with and ask them, could I share with you? And try to stay calm and try to share. And if the person is comfortable, that person could share back with you his stuff. And you expel the obsession of lust is by getting it out. And I've shared some of these dark, shameful, disgusting things. I don't know why, it was very shameful for me. A lot of, again, I'm being recorded. But certain (laughs) things was very, very shameful. I couldn't get it out. But once I got it out, it it was very helpful. Yeah. Thank you, Chaim. Can I just, I just want to add one point. Yeah, sure. To Zalman's question. Um, I find that what Chaim just said is very, very true. It really depends, what's my intention? Is my intention surrender? (coughs) Or is my intention to get a high off of your MOs? And because a lot of this has happened. Love it, you know, love it. share this and they do it on the stroke of recovery but they get a high off of, get a hit, get a hit off of that. So the real question is, where's my heart? What's my intention? You know, it's my intention to really surrender and let it go and it's an act of self-deflation, it's an act of letting go or am I really holding on to it and I want to get a hit, hit off of talking about mine and, and, yeah, it'll, and it'll, 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 so I just want to put that out there because it could be a double-edged sword sometimes. So I just want to say I love what Zevi just said and it's, it, it's extremely important. One of the things I want to talk about by the, next, by the next session that we do, the next workshop, is what does surrender mean? <coughs> How do we let it go? Most people don't even know what the definition of surrender means. But surrender is, is an action of letting it go, of giving it up of not holding on to it. In my mind, I held on to this fantasy that I'm going to have a threesome with who knows who for such a long time. It's almost so sacred, I'm not gonna give it away to you. I'm not gonna tell it to you. When I write it down, I give it away. Now it's tricky, because sometimes we're not in a place of giving it away yet, I do wanna say. And sometimes we're in a place of, I, uh, it's, I, I, I'm still holding on to it. It's not 100%, uh, I'm not on the level of total surrender. I would suggest you start writing. And one tool for the writing is also, is I learned this from the old timers, is we're powerless over everything, really. We're powerless over writing this down. We say, God, write it for me. Some people told me that before doing any step work, we write on top of it, God, do this for me. I can't, you can. And it comes out then. Yeah, let's continue. I'm, I'm new, um, so I don't know if it's a question other people What's answer to. Yankee. Yankee, welcome, welcome. How, how do I identify when there are obviously like micro thoughts I have in my head throughout the day, so 
So how would I identify when I need help, like immediately, like I need to make a phone call or something? Like what's considered, like for you and your story, it was a link. That's like a very obvious like line cross. But like, how do I know if like a micro thought is something that, you know, I don't want to be making phone calls like 50 times a day, but how do I identify when like I need to? Love the question. Appreciate the honesty about the question also. Beautiful. The answer for me is it takes time. It's a whole new world, right? But I've learned we're playing around with fire. This is deadly. <coughs> Somebody, Zevi, during his check-in, he always checks in, it starts with a sexual thought. It starts with a sexual thought. Do I check in every sexual thought or not? Then I have to make phone calls 50 times a day? The sober people in the room could tell you they've been making phone calls in early recovery 50 times a day. Don't play around with fire. <clears throat> chase recovery like you chased lust. I didn't say, oh, I got a peer. I saw a naked woman. Good for the day. No. One recovery should be another recovery should be another recovery should be another recovery. And we learn at one point it does lessen. I don't answer all the phone calls as people know. I don't make phone calls all day. I don't, I'm not all day thinking and what's it called. And I learned to stop the motion picture, which is a tool we're going to talk about in the next session, tools that we're going to learn how to stop and what to do and when a trigger hits and how to go about the trigger and some actions we could take different than we have been doing in the past. But in early recovery, all day and night is recovery. All The same way there was lust all day and night, there needs to be recovery all day and night. And the message I got from my sponsor was, go from one meeting to the next <coughs> meeting and stay sober. But you can't because you're powerless. Make sure the two meetings are very close together. Don't go on Tuesday and the next meeting is on a Thursday. Go Tuesday morning, maybe Tuesday afternoon, maybe Tuesday night. Then Wednesday morning, then maybe Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday night. Early recovery, I'll just put this out there. The average guy that's here in our program that is sober for over five years has gone to a meeting a day for the first year without even a shadow of a doubt. Some of us went too. The average guy put his business, his life, his livelihood, his everything on hold. I'm scared as a guy who's sober now for a few years to tell a guy who needs to support his family who's this and that. Uh, you don't have to come to a meeting every day. I, I know your kids, your wife. For me, my sponsor said, good luck. <laughs> I can't answer you what you're doing. You need to be here. Again, you have cancer. The guy that's in the cancer war is not sitting there on his bed while he's hooked up. He'll, he'll be hooked up acting out, as we know, but he won't be hooked up um, 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 being busy with his finances and being busy with his wife needs the babysitter. <laughs> like, who cares? I'm letting everybody know some good news. We have a heavy level of cancer called sexualism. And as a result, you're going to have a beautiful, amazing life if you don't just stop it after step one. Yeah. Um, what, this, what why do you say early recovery? The more person, if it's a disease that's always there, shouldn't someone be by a meeting every, every day, um, no matter how long he's sober for? Great question. Great question. I asked this question to old timers. 
you repeat the question? Great question. The question was, is this still being recorded? The question was, why am I saying that only in the early years or early year should you come to a meeting a day and be so rigid with all your phone calls and all your step work and the reading and everything? If you have a disease and the disease is not a disease that goes away, then why shouldn't you be doing it all day? And there's a fine line over here. The 12th step says, as a result of working these 12 steps, we had a spiritual awakening. The awakening is, is that we don't get uncomfortable and we don't get that sensation on a general, on a daily basis as we used to get when we were in active addition in the early years. We become calmer, happier, more serene, more healthy. Not only that, things don't trigger us as much because we work through our character defects, we gave up our will to God, we live on a spiritual plane, so things don't get to us as strongly and as much. So at one point, the doctor tells the, 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 the patient, hey, your chemo went away. You don't need to go for radiation twice a, a day anymore or twice a week. You don't need to take this amount of medication because I see that, that it relaxed. You know what medication I do take more than I've ta taken in early recovery? I gave my will and life over to God that I, I'm there as service to my wife and children all day. Does that mean that it went away the disease or it's still there? Just the disease won't go away till three days after you're dead. <laughs> old timers would say, if you see my grave shaking, I've heard this from old timers, it's me asking for one more last orgasm. <laughs> I once asked Harvey, I said, I'm getting old. I don't have that sexual desire like I used to have. And I'm like, don't worry. This too shall pass. You know what I mean? <laughs> the disease does. If you, again, if you're a pickle, if you were a cucumber and you turn it into a pickle, you're not becoming a cucumber again. Never, never, never. You know what you're becoming? A pickle that is so special, that is so uniquely enjoyable. A pickle is better than a cucumber. A let's be honest. Uh, right, right. A pickle is much better. A cucumber is a cucumber. You eat it with... Uh, a pickle is a pickle. You know what I mean? But this pickle is so enjoyable and so amazing that if you speak to old timers, I for years, I used to hear old timers for years say, I'm thankful for my disease today. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. It took me many, 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 many years. And then bits of pieces, I would have moments of like, thank God I'm a sexaholic. Today, 90% of the time, I'm grateful that I'm a sexaholic. Maybe more. I don't know the percentage. I'm, I, I'm, I wouldn't have the friends that I have. I wouldn't have the finances that I have. I wouldn't have a relationship with God. You can't get a relationship with God. I was forced into, it's part of what I said, you just have to accept certain things. I have to accept that God loves me and I love him. You're not getting that anywhere else unless you're an addict. Imagine being told, God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, but what happens if I do a sin? Too bad, he loves you anyway. And you have to believe that. I am forced to believe God loves me and there's nothing I can do about it. And he's there to take care of me and there's nothing I can do about it. I want to give that up for anything in the world. 
even if my father says, if you do this, I'm telling you, you're, I, I am forced not to believe my father, not to believe the rabbi, and I'm forced to believe that God loves me no matter what. All the sicknesses in the world and diseases and kids, and I am forced to still believe God loves me. Because I'm a sexaholic, I have the family I have today. I have everything that I have is because I'm a sexaholic. I was heading in a total different direction. My God, where I was heading. So it's, it's part of what we're going to learn during the, the, the step. But this step for this step is the disease model. And I want to put this out there before I forget. If you haven't read the, the, the doctor's opinion, I strongly recommend for 30 days, every day, slowly reading the doctor's opinion. I... I, don't, I went to a lot of yeshivas that don't, don't teach English. Let's just put it that way, okay? I don't know how to read, write, or spell. I almost left this program because when it came to my turn for reading, I broke my teeth. I was so embarrassed I didn't want to come back. My sponsor told me you don't have a choice. Figure out how to read. And I sat there and broke my teeth. I got much better in reading. Much better. And the doctor's opinion is, is one of the things that I had to read over and over and over because I have to brainwash myself. I want to just explain to everybody something. You're going to walk out of here and you're going to feel a tidal wave of emotions of these words. Who said? Okay. It's one guy's opinion. You'll hear the next guy saying something else. Okay, so that's the way he interprets it, but I'll show you 10 other people. You're going to hear a, such an amount of noise of not wanting to accept the disease model. But somehow, all the people that did accept the disease model are sober. All the people, as a result of the disease model, are taking recovery serious, are sober. And all the people <coughs> walking around with the who sits, and I don't have to believe what you hold, and who are you to tell me, somehow not staying sober. So there's a calculation that we've got to simply take. It's 8.14. I appreciate everybody allowing me to share. Next Thursday at 7.15, we'll continue, and we will work on step one. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.